Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschooling moms. I am your co-host, Renee Mathis, joined by my other co-host, Karen Kern. And before we get started, I want to um, shout out a thank you to our Dwell sponsor for this episode, and that is Inquisicook. Are you searching for hands-on activities that explore the practical side of science? Look no further than your kitchen. Inquisicook blends food, science, and culinary arts into an engaging program that puts delicious food on the family table. Let Inquisicook do the teaching with lesson videos that speak to the student in a friendly conversational tone. Their online platform is easy to navigate and optimized for mobile, so the learning experience can move from the classroom to the kitchen without a hitch. They provide the recipes, instruction sheets, and student forms for every lesson, so there are no books to buy. And their instructor resources make assessing student progress a piece of cake, even for the busiest parents. Inquisicook was created by homeschoolers for homeschoolers, and they're passionate about turning curious students into intuitive cooks, not just recipe followers. Say goodbye to the tyranny of the ingredients list. And say hello to utilizing what's in season, what's on sale, or what's in the fridge. Visit inquisicook.com to view sample lessons, then check out the recipe gallery to see just how crave-worthy science can be. And now I'd like for um, my co-host Karen to introduce our special guest for today. Hi, Karen. Hi, Renee. Um, So it's really fun for me to introduce our guest today because she is my daughter, and her name is Katarina Hamilton, Hamilton being her new surname because she is newlywed. And um, this was her first Christmas with Jameson, and we welcomed him into our family. And so Katarina is our third child out of five and our first daughter. And professionally, she is the director of our Cersei Press, and she is a teacher in a high school co-op in Charlotte. Um, she has lots of teaching experience. 
in a variety of settings and places. She taught for five years in Uganda in, in several different settings, and she's taught at Belmont Abbey College, and she continues teaching, and she is a frequent speaker on our webinars and on our all things Circe and at conferences, and she loves to talk about the um, Middle Ages and the medieval world and symbolism, and I'm always just so proud of her every time I get to hear her speak, and I think, where did you get all this wonderful knowledge and inspiration and talent? But um, so welcome, Katarina. And if I if I mess up and call you Katie, I apologize. But you know, you'll always be Katie to me. But grown up name is Katarina. Welcome. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Pleasure to be here with you. Um, so today we have her on with us to talk about memorizing. And we want to focus particularly on the why of memorizing and the what to memorize, because I think that there's, um, you know, particularly people who are new to homeschooling or they have young children, they know that they want to get their children memorizing. And there's a great body, the whole world out there is ready to be memorized, but it can be overwhelming and they don't know where to start or what things are the most important. So we're going to just jump in with the question right off of why, why memorize things if you can read it, if it's at your fingertips on the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. It's also quite a broad question. So I guess for context, I'll start with where my research around memory began. In teaching classically in homeschool communities, I, I started noticing how many students and how many mothers even thought that knowledge was the ability to repeat facts. So I was seeing these performances where students would state all of their memorized material and that was kind of the culmination of the end of the year, the culmination of their studies. And I was more and more discouraged by that. The idea that that was the culmination, the height of what we're searching for in learning. And so I started doing more research on what memory was like in the practice of the seven liberal arts. So particularly the Greco-Roman concept of the seven liberal arts, but then also in the medieval world, how were they using memory and it was, it was, of course, so important in the medieval world before the printing press, where in order to learn something, you had to have it memorized. And now the world is different, perhaps, but our brains are still the same. Our brains operate in the same way and our spirits, our souls are the same. And so we relate to information in the same way, I think, being human. Um, so I just wanted to understand how were they in the medieval world looking at memory and what really struck me, and this is primarily through the research of a scholar named Mary Carruthers. She has a lot of books if you want to check her out. Mary Carruthers talks about how in the medieval world, memory was actually a creative act. So you would, you would, there was a distinction. There was the art of recitatio or recitation as separate from the art of memoria or memory. And recitation came first. You learned the art of recitation before you learned the art of memory or memoria. So that was what we think of as memory today is that first art of recitation. You'd memorize facts, you'd store up things in your soul. And then after that, you'd create something new. And that was the work of memoria. And I think the a, a fitting metaphor for this, and it's not even metaphor, it's also literal, is Mary. Um, so when the angel comes to Mary and says, you are going to give birth to, to God incarnate, her response is to turn to Old Testament scripture. We have hymns, particularly hymns from Hannah and other 
figures in the Old Testament, other women in the Old Testament who sang hymns of praise. And we can look at the Magnificat, Mary's response in, in Luke to the angel. And we can go line by line and see how she's referring to these hymns from the Old Testament, but she's weaving her own new song through these older songs. So she stored up in her time and her childhood. She memorized vast amounts of scripture. And then in the right moment at the right time, she was able to sing her own song, which was imitative, but yet altogether new, which is of course, what's occurring within her own womb is that she is, creating new life in her womb from her own body, but yet through God, through the Holy Spirit. So there's this creative act in participation with memory and imitation. And we're presented, I think, in modern education, a false dichotomy, this idea that either we are imitative um, and just repeating what other people have said, or we're entirely original and we're not, we're not memorizing. We're not feeling the need to, um, repeat other people or regurgitate is the way that it's thought about. But I think that's a false dichotomy. I think that there's a harmony between the two that we can imitate while being creative at the same time. And I think that's ultimately what we're seeking. So memorizing good, true, beautiful things is wonderful in those in those early years where we're practicing the art of recitatio, but that can't be the end. We have to move on to the art of memoria and use, create new things with that which we've memorized. That's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. I, I That's really encouraging, and I hope our listeners are encouraged as well that, that so it's almost like if I'm hearing you correctly, the, the recitatio is could we call that the grammar stage of memorization? It's it's the very early, basic, but not to be disparaged. Not, oh, that's just rote memorization. That's more like the foundation yes. that later creative work is going to be built upon. So if you mm-hmm. aspire to be a storyteller or a poet or a songwriter who uses and weaves words, then those early things that you have memorized and stored up in your heart and soul are only going to be later on, they're going to be there to help you. Exactly. Right? Exactly. They're the, 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 we could think of them as tools, but maybe it's like, if you're a jeweler, you go through your life collecting beautiful beads or jewels or stones, whatever. And then when the time comes, when you need to make this beautiful jewelry for some occasion, you've got everything ready and you just pull out your, your beautiful collected objects and you make this beautiful jewelry. I think of it in that sort of way. Yeah, where the the art of recitatio is, I think, very fitting for the grammar stage. And there's also, of course, a grammar stage in every subject. No matter what age we are, we still have to practice the art of recitatio before we can move on to memoria. But it is um, enabling us to move on to, to this creative act. So give us an example of a timeline because being around... Well, you know, when you're a grandparent, and I'm sure you see this, Renee, you look at, well, you observe what your grandchildren are doing, and you remember what your children did that was similar, and you see patterns. And so one of those patterns is that they might memorize a a fun poem or nursery rhyme, but then they'll also have fun with it, and they'll change the words, Mm -hmm. or they'll, they'll, you know, and 
sometimes it's borders on silly, but they're still using that. They're still developing that skill and that love for words when they change it up. So it's not like you want to, I don't think, correct me. It's not like you want to um, have a set goal. So my child is going to do recitatio until third grade. And then we're going to start using what they've learned into to be creative because it's more like in some ways, as soon as they learn a poem, they're in some way becoming creative with it. Yes. Yeah. You can't, but you can't always plan that. Like you can't say, okay, now go be creative with it. Like it's such a natural thing. Yes. This is the thing about creativity. It has to happen naturally, organically from the, the, the human spirit interacting with an idea. It doesn't happen from an external source saying, okay, now go be creative. That's, that's an artificial construct and it's just not the way humans work. So yeah, I think that once a human, what a child of any age, whether they're three or 30, um, a human of any age, when after we've mastered something, after we've memorized it, the more we play with it, the more we practice anything that we've mastered, the more we start naturally adapting it to situations and pushing boundaries and seeing, hey, what if I change the metering of this poem? Or what if I take the metering of this poem, but change the words to this context over here? We start using things naturally, playfully once we've mastered them, but we can't play until we've mastered. So yeah, I definitely don't think okay, here, once you hit third grade, you move from recitatio to memoria. I think there's a natural organic process where the human spirit will reveal when it's when it's ready to move on to memoria and to start playing. And then there's also, there's, there's the role of the teacher and the mother in noticing when is this child, when have they mastered it, and when do they need a little prompting? When do we need to say, hey, take the metering of this poem and let's apply it to this history lesson we just did. Let's write a poem from that's about Charlemagne because we're studying him in history, but let's put it to the meter of Jabberwocky. What happens then? You know, and because this student has memorized Jabberwocky and nonsense poetry is great for this anyway because it already doesn't have a specific narrative to it. Um, once they've already played with it and they feel the meter in their body, then they can apply it to some other context. So sometimes as the teacher, as the mother, we need to watch and see when the student is ready to play in this way. But you will notice the child starting to play naturally, and then you just prompt that further. So the first reason then why, why memorize things, poetry, what, whatever it is, um, is because it helps you to move from recitatio to memoria. And what, how, how else would you, what, what would other, be other reasons? Yeah, well, okay, just this, this might be semantic, but I don't know that I would say a reason to do it is that it helps you move from recitatio to memoria. I was trying yes. to summarize, but. Okay, okay. I'm going along there. So, Sorry, I'm quite particular. <laughs> um, I think the reason to do it there is that that the humans long to create and memoria, the work of memory is what gives us the ability to create. So like with that metaphor of the jewelry, we're filling our, our souls with these jewels. So then when it comes time to make something new, we've got all of those jewels ready to go. And I think that humans feel frustrated and stunted and I'm deeply in our spirit frustrated. I don't even know if that's a strong enough word when we aren't being creative in some way. I think every human, 
um, even if it's not creative in the arts, you know, some other form of creativity, we have to be making something. And so um, to not give your students something with which they can create is setting them up for frustration and I think a stunting of their own spirit in the future. So that's, I think, maybe the most, maybe one of the greatest reasons that I would say we need to memorize just for the flourishing of the human soul. Um, but then on, on, on another, from another vantage point, I think one of the reasons that we need to memorize is that we become what we, what we eat, right? We become what we behold. And so as we fill our mind with good, true, beautiful things, we become more like that. So we're crafting ourselves just as much as we are crafting these other things that we're creating. So the child who has taken in all of these beautiful poems, for example, um, you, you don't know when at some point something, some experience or some, some place that they are is going to call to mind one of those poems yeah. and, and it's going to come out and it's going to be beautiful. And they're going to be so excited that yeah. it's going to bubble up inside of them because it was stored in there in the first place. Yes. Yes. And, so, and then there's just the practical side. I'm thinking of, you know, let's face it. I mean, we, we do have, you know, electronic devices at our fingertips, but life is a lot easier if you can just pull things out of your head that you've memorized. I mean, whether it's you, know, you want to know the name of the Great Lakes or, um, you know, some fact is basically what I'm referring to. Um, yeah. How to yeah. spell a word. And, you know, so is it true that our memories are a muscle that we need to exercise and, and build and grow throughout our lives? Absolutely. Yes, we do know that. Studies show that to be true. Um I also think that even if we're just talking about memorizing facts, so let's set aside memorizing beautiful poetry and we're just talking like names, dates, that, those types of events. Um, even if that's all we're memorizing, I do still think it's a crucial skill because David Hicks says this in Norms and Nobility, the educated mind can draw connections. Um, once you have stored up in your mind events, names, dates, facts about human existence, you're able to make connections and draw comparisons and figure out causal relationships, which is essentially the work of history and studying history. You simply cannot identify causal relationships if you don't have the events in your head. It would take way too much time to every time you learn about one event to sit down and look up all of the other events that happened beforehand that might have some sort of effect on this one event. So in order to quickly do the work of drawing connections and understanding causal relationships, which again is the work of history, then you're you're not um, you're not you're not able to truly think with an educated mind if you can't do that quickly in your own head. You simply can't make up for that with research. Mm -hmm. I say that as a researcher. <laughs> well, and speaking of norms and nobility, because I happen to have my copy of that right next to me. Um, in chapter, let's see, is it chapter chapter nine, a curriculum proposal, he starts with grade seven and goes up through grade 12. And with each grade, he has a list of things to memorize. So if you wanted some ideas for especially the older grades, um, norms is a great place to go. But what about younger grades? Let's, let's talk for a minute about what to memorize. How, how does the homeschool mom with, let's say, a kindergartner or a first grader know What's the best thing to start with? Can I jump in here with another sponsor? And we are thankful for them. And then when we come back, we'll talk about the what. 
having talked about the wine. So Reformation Bible College in Central Florida, Reformation Bible College seeks to train up men and women of faith who can serve effectively as Christian leaders. The founder of RBC, Dr. R.C. Sproul, carefully designed the curriculum to provide students with a classical education that is distinctly reformed. RBC offers special degree programs, including a Bachelor of Arts in Theology, which lays the theological groundwork for students called to any vocation, from the pastorate and missions to medicine and law. Students can also earn a minor in Reformed classical education, specially designed to equip students to teach and serve in the growing classical Christian school movement. In addition to receiving an in-depth theological foundation, students have the opportunity to grow as they know, serve, and worship the Lord together in community with like-minded believers. Whether attending a weekly chapel service, catching up with a neighbor in the on-campus residence hall, or meeting with a professor at the cafe, an RBC education provides students with plenty of opportunities to take the biblical truth learned in the classroom and put it into daily practice. Are you interested in joining the RBC family? Take the next step in pursuing a theological education and visit ReformationBibleCollege.org. So thank you to RBC. And back to why, or we did why, what? <laughs> well, we touched on why. We gave three. We three on. We'll, we'll, we'll accept it. Um, <laughs> what? Okay, well, technically, what is slightly different from the way you worded the question? So there are two answers. One, you said, how does a mother know what to have their student memorize? And the other is what to memorize. Um, how, how do you know what to memorize? I would say lean on the tradition. It's there for a reason. Um, we've chosen, there have been, there's these poems that have lasted over time. And so finding a collection that's well curated would just be a really great place to start and you can trust it. Um, the other thing I would say is it's easy to overthink this as, as homeschooling moms. We can think, oh, what if I miss this excellent poem that my child never gets? Or what if I what if I give them the wrong poems or something like that? Um, I don't think that that anxiety is necessary if we're operating within the tradition. And you're going to miss great poems. There's so many amazing poems that I found in my adult years. And I'm like, why didn't I know this when I was younger? And that's okay. Um, what I do think is important or what I would what I would advise trying to do every year, regardless of the age of the student, is some nonsense poetry so that students can have an understanding of metering without the meaning of the poem, severing them from the sounds. So it's easy, especially as students are older, it's actually more important to do nonsense poetry if you want them to internalize the syntax of English language um, or English poetry. So, and that's because we can get so caught up on understanding or thinking we need to understand the poem that we forget to play with it and just let the sounds roll over us and think of English as sounds. So nonsense poetry is good for that, especially in teaching things like metering, trying to use the whole body as much as possible. So clapping, stomping, dancing, anything to help the body interact with the meter so you can really feel it is important at any age if the students aren't already mastered in that. And then um, Shakespeare, any age. I would start Shakespeare in the womb. I really would. I mean, and it's not the way that I would have students memorize Shakespeare isn't telling them, okay, now we're going to do our memory work. Let's sit down and memorize this sonnet. 
it would literally just be a consistent, you read it to the child consistently. And, and this is how I do poetry, actually. You just every day or consistently read the poem to them. And then eventually one day they have it memorized. I mean, we know this is how they memorize their books. And so it doesn't have to be memory work time. In fact, as much as is possible, I, I would advise not to call it memory work, to just have it be a part of the day. Maybe you're standing in line at the grocery store or you're on a road trip or I don't know, there's a lull, it's quiet time and you just read the poem and then, you know, go on with your with your day or whatever the case may be. Just have it be a way to bring delight into the day instead of a way to to work. When I taught when I taught third grade for a few years, I loved using the poems that we were memorizing just in a downtime, like you were saying, like we're lining up, we're waiting, or we're getting our backpacks on, and to have them just say a poem that we've done from the first day of the year, and they know it so well, they don't have to think about it, and they don't have to yeah. worry about not knowing a word, and it just rolls off the tongue, and it's so delightful, and it's just so fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you... Katarina, do you remember any poems from your childhood still that that you can recall? Oh, yeah, I remember lots of the memory work I did. In fact, what's interesting, I think about this often in my studies on memory. The memory work that I remember the best is from ages kindergarten to third grade. So it's those early years when you really repeat in those early years, those things never leave you. So um be encouraged by that. I, I I do remember a fair number of poems and especially scripture. I remember whole chapters of scripture that I memorized in those early years. Um, some of the some of the silly ones are still are still my favorite. I remember when you were four years old and you weren't even in school yet, but you dad brought you to school and you said in front of the whole school the first lines of um what, what is it? My heart my heart leaps up, right, when I behold a rainbow in the sky. You were this, this little person reciting this poem, you know, about becoming a man when I was a child. Now I am a man. It was just the cutest thing. But like, it was just in there. And it was delightful. Yeah. Yeah. And I just always thought it was fun. I had no, I never thought of it as school. And I think that's one of the gifts that I was given in my schooling years is that I didn't think that these things were work. I just thought this was how you play. And I think really that's what language should be in these early years and and in every age we've given we've been given language as a way to communicate, which is absolutely incredible that we're able to participate in the image of God and being the image of God in this way. Um, and it's just this massive, creative, playful thing. And so the more we can experience it that way and offer it to our children that way, I think the better. Um. Do you have any resources or books of poetry? Like I remember, and we've had it around our house, the Harp and Laurel Wreath um, mm-hmm. by Laura Burquist has, you know, a wide variety of poems that take children from the earliest years right through high school. That's a really good yeah. one. Everybody should have that one. Yeah. I, the verses. I have a couple illustrated collections of children's poetry um, that are beautiful. I forget now who publishes them, but if you look online for illustrated children's poetry, you'll find a lot of collections. And I, I do largely choose them based on how beautiful the illustrations are. I think that's really important. 
but I, unfortunately I, they're at my home office and right now I'm at my work office. Also, so. I think that if, if the mother or the teacher enjoys the poem, that's infectious and the kids will, the kids will love it too, just by hearing it. Yeah. Poems that you like. And I mean, and, and don't forget the you know, not just memorizing poetry, but but hymns that you sing in church on Sunday, um, mm -hmm. psalms. Psalm singing is an art that I'm fully and on board with. We need to bring back more psalm singing. Um, and so there's that. And there's, you know, mm -hmm. if you belong to a faith tradition that has a catechism or creeds, yeah, those are things yeah. that that can be, you know, situated deep in our, our children's souls. Um, yes. Kind of, I, I would say maybe that's a bridge. They're, they're more than just facts, but um, I, you know, they don't always have the, the beautiful rhythm and meter of poetry, but they're still important to, to meditate on and to, to internalize. Yes. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the value of a classroom catechism, which is a whole nother benefit that we haven't that's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need to be making sure that these things we're spending a lot of time with our students on, that they're actually remembering them, storing them away in their hearts. Yeah. That's good. So do you have some suggestions? Um, again, if, if we, if there's, there's probably so much to talk about here, we could go on into another episode, but how do we actually memorize things? Mm -hmm. So you talked about engaging and inviting them in with beautiful pictures, um, just the the repetition over and over of just enjoying them together. But are are there more things or more formal things we can do with our kids? Yes, yes. Um, I have a lot of ideas for this. So most of the research that I've done around this, again, is from the medieval world. How were they actually going about memorization when they had to memorize whole books in one sitting? And then also ancient civilizations. And um, how were they memorizing and instilling their traditional knowledge into their landscape and into objects so that they could pass it on these cultures that didn't have a written language? So I've, I've spent a fair amount of time researching those two types of cultures to see what they were doing. And that's where I've learned some of my favorite things favorite ways of memorizing. And one of them is called a kipu. This is from an ancient, I forget which culture this is from. It's spelled Q-U-I-P-U. -U. Oh. And it's a form of jewelry. Well, the, at first they thought it was ritualistic. It was worn in, um, they thought it was worn in religious ceremonies, but it wasn't. It was actually ways of memorizing content and they would do it for their tribal traditions. But we can do it with anything that we want to memorize. I really recommend doing this with books. Like I've had students do this for the Odyssey where they put, you take a different bead or a different object that's going to represent a certain thing that happens in the story. And then you put it on a chain in that order. So whichever event happens first, the students pick out a bead and then they put that bead on the chain. And then in chronological order, they put all of these beads. And what's good about this or what I think, is, one of the things I think is helpful is it's using the body, using the senses. The student also has to make an analogy. They have to hear and understand what you're saying, draw a corollary to an object that they're seeing, which is some abstract reasoning skills that's helping them internalize the things by, by, cross, by crossing it with different parts of their brain. And then they're putting that object in the chain and that's helping them memorize. And then when they're, when they want to retell the story, so you can do this with Charlotte Mason's ideas of recitation. When you're reading the story to them, they put the beads on the chain in the order that you're telling the story. 
And then um, when they narrate it back, they have the beads and they can touch each bead and remind themselves of what happened next. So it's a, it's a really good support for narration. Um, but it works for all kinds of memorization. I think that one's really valuable. And what's important there is that the objects or the, the, the hooks that are helping the students remember the thing that they're thinking of doesn't need to make sense to the teacher. It just needs to make sense to the student. They need to see it as a trigger. And if they think that this blue bead reminds them of Penelope, then that's fine, as long as it truly does remind them of Penelope, right? So it's helping them draw connections and that's storing things in their brain in a more solid way. So I really love kipus. Um, there's a lot of research on that that you can find online if you just Google memory devices kipus. Um, I also love using the landscape, embedding your knowledge in the landscape. It's kind of like an extended memory palace. And I think this is best for chron uh, anything chronological. So particularly timelines, I think this is ideal. You go for a long walk in your neighborhood somewhere that's consistent. If you have a lot of property on your own house, go for a walk in your own property. And then you you use triggers from the different things that you're seeing in your landscape. And those remind you of the things that you're trying to remember and, and recall. Um, and you do that in a chronological order. And there's some specific ways to create different hooks. And I have tricks for different ways that I do numbers. And I have different, on my street, I'll have one street for a given century. So each street is a different century. And if I'm thinking about what year a certain event happened, It'll help me think about time more accurately if I can see how close or how far it is from some other event. So it helps students with their own body take time and turn it into space. So they can really get a feel for how far away Christ was. And was Christ further away from us than he was from the founding of Rome? What about from the building of the pyramids? They don't have to think about this abstractly with time, but concretely with space. And they can say, well, I can walk to Christ in five minutes, but it takes me 10 minutes to walk to the pyramid. So what does that mean? So it's just helping to take these abstract concepts and turn them into physical ideas. So I really love doing that. Of course, the memory palace, the medieval memory palace is a really important way to memorize using your physical space. I use memory palaces all the time. And then um, another one that I really love is called a Pictura, P-I-C-T-U-R-A. This is a medieval memory technique where they would draw one image and then they would store whatever it is they're trying to memorize within that one image. And this is particularly good for scripture. So if you're memorizing, let's say they were doing one of the gospels, they would draw, let's say the bull or the eagle, whichever gospel it is that's symbolized with that. They would, they would draw the animal so they know which gospel it is. And then they would take the different verses and store it on the eagle in a, in an order according to, they like label, they divide out the eagle into different quadrants, label those quadrants. And then each quadrant is a different verse. So it's, it's kind of hard to describe without seeing it. But if you look up um, medieval pictura, you'll find lots of examples. And when you can see it, it makes sense. It's taking all of this information and putting it into one snapshot, one visual snapshot that you can take in at one moment. And that's really important with memory is to break down all of the, the diverse things we have to memorize into concrete bite-sized snapshots. And so the Pictura are allowing you to do that. 
So, so does this enable you when you are doing a talk to not use notes? Because I notice, like when you're doing a talk, you don't you you don't very often look down at your notes or follow. I don't know, maybe you do. I don't have notes. But, but so so you said just now you said you use these memory paths a lot. So or all the time. So if you're doing a talk, do, do you imagine the memory palace different your different points in your talk? Or is I, it how, yeah, is well, the ways that you actually use it now, not you know, not just in your teaching or memorizing something for a test, but yeah, I store I store my talks in my memory palace. And I have a consistent, I use the same memory palace, although I might have to change it because I've moved. <laughs> um, and that's the problem with memory palaces. Not the problem, but that's the struggle. When you move, you kind of have to build a new one. Um, but especially with children, you want to start with a memory palace that they're physically in. So you start by storing the information in the space. And when you are thinking of a trigger, you touch it. So maybe the couch let's say I had a green couch. So that green couch reminds me of grass and I'm memorizing the verse, the grass withers and the flower fades. So I put my hand on the green couch and I say the line and then next to it, there's a lamp and I put my hand on the lamp and then, you know, it's, it triggers some other line. So I, I, with children, I don't do that now, but with children, I would have them physically touch the items that are working as hooks and then they recite the line. And then eventually they reach the point where they can move things around. And that's really the goal with medieval memory techniques. The idea was if you needed to recite something in a chronological order, then you didn't really know it. So for me, with the Old Testament books of the Bible, let's say, I have to recite from Genesis all the way one verse, like in an order in order to remember where a book is. But that would they would have said, well, you don't know it at all then because you need to be able to move pieces around and see how they relate. You shouldn't have to recite it or the alphabet, right? It should be easy to recite it backwards. It's not for me because I have it memorized in order. Anyway, so... Um, with the memory palace, the same is true. Once you've got, let's say, one verse for each chapter in a psalm stored in your memory palace, you could then, as the mother in the room with the kids in the room, if you're standing in the same memory palace that they've used, you can point to different hooks and have them recite the chapter in different orders. So now you're playing with the verses and seeing, well, what, what happens with the poetry if we move these verses around and we recite them out of order? Um and then again, we're just playing with poetry this way by moving around the hooks in our memory palace. Um, so we've been going about 30 minutes and we usually, that's about usual length of our podcast. So um, it would be great though, if you would come back sometime and take us a little more deeper into the memory palace, because I think it's just such a valuable tool that I think our listeners would enjoy. And so we could even do an example, like we could come up with a simple poem or that most of us know or whatever, and you could give us an example of how you might use the memory palace to learn particular. Oh, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. Yeah, I will say that with the memory palace, it's highly visual. So it's hard to just talk about it and understand. I feel like everything I've been explaining uh, techniques, the audience is probably like, what is she talking about? I can't see this. I'm doing a terrible job explaining it because I'm trying to go quickly. But um, yeah, we can maybe provide some visual resources as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for being 
Yeah, thank you for having me on to talk to you about this and to hear some of your um, experience and your wisdom and all of these things. And um, we will have you back again. So thanks. See y'all later. Here's to home. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.